I think it's really up to the users of the market to come up and design their own future-proof system that allows everybody in, allows everybody to have access and to remove some of the barriers that can be very disruptive to the market. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? Welcome back to When Markets Break on Smarter Markets. In this podcast series, we're looking back at past market crises with people who were there to learn what went wrong and what we can learn from it. I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at Abex Technologies. Our guest today is David Gornel, former global head of precious metals trading at Natixis and a former chairman of the LBMA. We'll be discussing the massive dislocation between the gold markets in New York and London in March 2020, during the early days of the COVID-19 lockdowns. Hello, David. Welcome to Smarter Markets. Hi there, David. Thanks for joining us today to discuss this, you know, really tumultuous period in the gold market. I'd like to start off by giving our listeners a, a very brief description of the event and then turn to you to help us understand the context and walk us through the experience. Now, in the gold market, the most heavily traded futures market is located in New York City, while the most heavily traded physical spot market is located in London. Typically, the difference in the price of gold or the spread between the prompt futures contract in New York and the physical spot price in London is small, like around $1.50 per troy ounce. But on March 25th of 2020, that spread blew out to an unprecedented $60 or more per troy ounce. Uh, fortunes were made and fortunes were lost. You know, According to Bloomberg, JP Morgan made more than a billion dollars in 2020 in precious metals as the pandemic created unprecedented arbitrage opportunities, including this one. So before we dive into it, just to help us set some context, I wanted to ask you, why is this price spread between London and New York so important in the gold market? And how big of a deal was it to market participants that it reached you know, $60 or more per troy ounce? Hi, David. Well, to put this event into some context, we should say that the, the New York premium over London has always been a few cents and sometimes a few dollars an ounce. So for the market to move up to $60, $70, this was really a, a seismic move. The risk of this differential, uh, which we call the EFP, was modelled to be around about a dollar, you say a dollar and a half, I think, and stress tested to around five. The other important aspect of the gold market to understand is that the physical over-the-counter spot market is in London and the futures market is in New York. And what we'll see is physical gold that's held in London being typically hedged with a short futures contract deliverable in New York. Now, whilst this isn't an optimal solution, there are good reasons why this is the preferred hedge mechanism of a physical trader. And first of all, the futures offers a price spread that's narrow and stable and will often yield a better forward contango than London OTC forwards. And the exchange hedge also removes the OTC bilateral credit risk that an OTC trade carries. As the differential widens, anyone with a short hedge was getting squeezed. So the exchange margin calls would force banks to make a decision on whether to maintain the short, pay the margin, and try and deliver, or close out and pay the loss. 
that's a big decision to make. And I'm sure there was a lot of uh, stress and anxiety around those types of decisions. I know that, you know, the trigger for the blowout in the spread between New York and London were the shutdowns that were occurring to try to stop the spread of COVID-19 in, in those early days of the pandemic. Airline flights were being curbed between Europe and the U.S. We all experienced that. Some of the gold refineries in Switzerland were being closed, as many workplaces were. And normally, the airlines transporting gold between London and New York and refineries uh, manufacturing small bars from big bars and big bars from small bars tended to keep the price spreads narrow. And I think, to be fair, the COVID-19 pandemic was incredibly disruptive across markets and the economy globally. But was there something particular about the market structure of the gold market that made it especially vulnerable to an event like this? Well, I think to evaluate the vulnerability, we, we should define this part of the market structure as five different risk factors. So in no particular order, the location difference, which translates to your logistical risk, the size of the bars you mentioned in each market, and we can call that the fungibility risk of metal. The next thing you're going to need is the expert physical trading knowledge. So I'd call that a risk if you didn't know how to deliver to an exchange. Then there are the exchange's internal position limits. And then you've got the bank's own risk appetite and limit. So there are five things that all play out. And at various times during this dislocation, there was always at least one of these factors prevailing to affect the price. And at its height, all five of them played a part in the story. So as I said, one thing about the peculiarity of having a physical spot market in London and a futures contract deliverable in London is this interdeliverability factor. So the relocation of gold from predominantly Swiss ref refineries, as you mentioned, was prevented by a ban on passenger flights globally at the time. The other issue was this size of the bar. So in New York, it's a 100-ounce bar that's deliverable, whereas the size of the bar traded in London is 400, and they're not interdeliverable. So apart from the existing stock that sits on an exchange, any new 100-ounce or kilo bar must be produced to order. So from a refiner's perspective, this is a just-in-time premium variety of gold. And so you won't usually find them lying around in vaults waiting to be traded. And to that, we can note that there are about five refineries in Switzerland and there may be eight in total globally that regularly, regularly cast and deliver eligible exchange bars. The other aspect to this, broadly speaking, was two types of participant in the market who speak very different languages. And when you speak to physical traders, it's quite apparent and very noticeable. But the physical traders largely trade both markets of London and New York separately but they'll also trade both at the same time using an EFP, which is a single trade that simultaneously, in this example, buys futures and sells London at a market rate that represents the price difference between the two. Then there are the financial electronic traders who trade futures in New York and won't hedge by trading OTC London. So in most cases, the financial futures traders weren't set up to trade the EFP with the OTC physical market. So when they were caught short of futures, they were only left with one option. They could only buy back their futures position on the exchange and thus driving the price higher. So physical hedges would normally close out their risk of uh, London and New York by buying the EFP. So outside the commodity markets, I think a lot of our listeners might not be familiar with what an EFP is. Could you explain what an EFP is, the exchange for physical? 
Yeah, so it's it's a trade that uh, simultaneously involves the purchase of the exchange and the sale of OTC, or vice versa, at a rate differential in US dollars per ounce. So you can buy the futures and sell the OTC in one in one trade in one in one contract. So that would be the main way of kind of playing that R between London and New York in the in the context of the gold market? Yes, because it, it avoids leg lifting. So rather than having to go on and trade, if you have a, a physical trade, you are allowed to put it onto the exchange under the exchange rules. Hmm. And so you can eliminate the risk between the two markets without actually going through two venues. And probably having to post collateral and margin on both. <laughs> yes. I mean you're not gonna you're not gonna remove the two sets of fees on it. But it's certainly removing the the price differential risk that you're going to run whilst you decide whether you're going to do the the futures first or the OTC first. Mm. Thanks for that. So now that we've kind of set the stage with some of these aspects of the gold market, I guess this is more of the fun part. Can you walk us through how that event was experienced in the markets? Like, how did it play out? You've already told us a bit of all these factors kind of came to the forefront at various things, but. You know, what was the experience of being in the market at that time like? Well, I think that for most people that were sitting there watching this unfold, there wasn't really any correction. I think bid followed bid. So as the futures became bid and the prices rose, the electronic futures market makers basically chased the price higher. So we've, we've just talked about how the EFP wasn't used by the futures traders to liquidate their shorts. So if they, if they use the EFP, maybe some would argue that they wouldn't have chased it as high. However, the EFP market did actually become a liquid and probably wasn't going to help them in the end. But what, what we saw was the result was that the New York futures prices rose much quicker than the London spot. And then we talked about the supply. So without a just-in-time stock of 100-ounce bars or kilobars, and no refineries open at the time to create them, the market was left traveling in one direction at velocity, I might add, and, and the likes of which we've never really seen before. I think if you had been fortunate enough to hold eligible material at one of the refineries, you could have thought you were in a better position, but then there were no flights. So you know, one of the things that people don't really know about the, the gold market is gold isn't really moved around in a commercial way, that is on freighters. So they sit in the cargo hold of passenger aircraft. So you're quite often if you're traveling between gold hub to gold hub, you may well be sitting on a pile of gold underneath you. And that's the way it's moved. So when that mode of transport dried up, so was the ability to deliver gold from hub to hub. So I suppose the next thing we, we saw when things reopened in the refineries was that we had this mass of flight bookings. And so we ran out of capacity because very quickly, uh, you can imagine how much gold fits on on an aircraft. But with a lot of the airlines not moving passengers around, they quickly turn these planes into cargo planes. I've seen some pictures where they simply put them on the seats and stack them neatly in the places where people normally would have been. And that helped to alleviate some of the problems. But in reality, the banks were, in, in particular, were getting caught with the short hedge and the negative variation margins that range between several hundred million and a billion, according to what they stated publicly, such as the size of their, their market losses. I mean, they were, they were huge in the order of magnitude, probably six to seven standard deviations away from any market risk model. So we can say it was a, 
a black swan event and it definitely had a go at undermining the ability to manage market price risk by by using this method of, of futures hedging versus uh, London gold holdings but even after that it didn't get rid of it altogether yeah and i would imagine if you were if you're a gold trader in london and you're used to trying to properly manage your risk and you're doing it by shorting you know futures in new york on the exchange here and suddenly you know that price is bidding up away from you so your risk management is now the the leading cause of your pain and there's no way to cover your short right because you can't get the 100 ounce bars that you would need to deliver in new york and even if you have them getting them on a plane to get them to new york isn't really possible either so you're stuck trying to just find somebody else to buy that futures contract uh, that you're trying to buy it back in New York and the price is just chasing away up, <laughs> up, up, up and away on you. you know, how were the participants in London dealing with that? Well, once, once they'd overcome the two of those five risks I talked about, you would have thought then it was plain sailing after there. So then we introduced the, the other three risks, which were the limits, the risk models and, and the, the knowledge or ability to deliver. So we mentioned that some participants that had delivered gold already in that delivery month had reached their exchange limit. So the exchange places a limit on what you can deliver during the active month, and you weren't allowed or able to make a, a second one. And there were some exemptions permitted, but they weren't the norm. The second problem that we, we got to hear about was having overcome those obstacles, some of the traders had metal in the right place on the right side of the Atlantic, had the position limits, and were about to, to pull the trigger, so to speak, and were prevented of doing so by their risk managers who said that this was creating more risk. And they were told in no uncertain terms to take the hedge off, move the gold back to an OTC vault, and don't put any more onto the exchange. So you, you can imagine, whilst People have thought they've, they've got the upper hand in this arbitrage. They hadn't quite got it. And there was another one that um, frustrated a lot of people that hadn't been accustomed to delivering metal to an exchange, that it's quite a nuanced process. And if you haven't done it before, you know, you clearly realize that you need an experienced person to complete the transfer efficiently in the time frame allowed. Because no one's going to help you do that. No one's going to help you figure it out in a short time frame. So... Perfect storm, I'd say. Yeah, and it sounds like just you know the exchange because this was such a you know like a multi-standard deviation event. Just the, the the typical operations and practices weren't designed to try to move that amount of metal in such a short period of time. Whether it was the the size of the position limits that were allowed, the number of experienced people who know how to move gold in and out of exchange warehouses. I want to come back to the point about the risk management though, because that's kind of like a fascinating piece. So for you were saying for traders who had gold of the right size in New York, who were under their position limits, they could have delivered it into an exchange that was screaming for <laughs> that it needed metal. What was the risk management thought process that said, no, put it back in an OTC vault in New York, or was it shipped back to London at that point? It was shipped back to London because... Do you remember at the, at the start of this, we started talking about the, the model factor so that there's always a number 
that a risk manager uses to say what is fair value. So if you're going to measure this differential and it's only ever traded between $1 and $5 over the last 50 years, then that's the number you're going to use. And if it throws out a $70 differential, it breaks all the dials on the dashboard and there's just no way of resetting it. And a lot of these models are, are looked at regressively and they look at it over a period of time. So once it breaks, it doesn't just break for that, that day or that month. It stays within the risk for sometimes a year or two years thereafter until it levels out. So it actually had some long-term implications for the futures market. I imagine those are some colorful conversations. <laughs> I'd love to get back to, you know, some of the uh, some of the longer term implications. But before we do, you know, we we've been talking a lot about the gold market, and you know, in market events like this one that are disruptive enough to be memorable, it's usually not just one thing that goes wrong, but there's a lot of things going on and knock on effects that can feed on each other, as you said, or you know, impact other markets. So, you know, outside of what was happening in gold in New York and London, were there other problems at the same time, you know, in the wider gold market or the wider precious metals markets that had to be dealt with as well? Well, let's, yeah, let's look at the wider gold market. So it wasn't just London and New York that was affected by this. So in, in China and India, I think China was, was the, the largest discount ever seen to London. So from New York, it was, it was monumental. <laughs> and the same was going on in India. So you have to realize what the, you know, the, the Western mantra is to hoard gold in times of turmoil. It's the rainy day fund, whereas the Asians tend to use gold in that time. So where there is turmoil, they, they tend to dishoard and then they go to cash. So this was their rainy day. So they're cashing out. So the opposite effect is happening. So you've got massive discounts in China and India. They're not able to export before somebody said, well, hang on, why, why don't you just connect those two? They have to remain within the country. So that's probably one of the reasons why they went to an even deeper discount. But in terms of broader precious metals, yes, we saw the same differentials occurring in silver and platinum and the, all, all the way down the supply chain to the, the coin market in the US ended up around $100 premium. So uh, it wasn't just London, New York. That was just one example of how the dislocation happened. Right. And when you speak of the dislocations in the silver market, as an example, was that similar reasons for the gold market? Yeah, it's not quite the same thing because the standards are very similar. So you can, you can move bars, but you don't put silver on an aircraft when it's $20 an ounce. <laughs> so you, you would typically ship silver by sea freight container, and that's when you can find them. So uh, we've all read about the, um, the problems of supply chain management for a lack of uh, vessels, a lack of containers. And so silver got caught up in, in that very typical supply chain problem, even though the bars were the same size in London as they were in New York. <laughs> remember when I first got into commodities, uh, uh, I was told that commodities is all logistics. <laughs> you need to understand logistics. And it certainly seems like the case here. Now, I, I wanted to ask you, what ultimately brought this event to a resolution? Like, Did it resolve itself naturally over time? Or did participants, regulators have to step in and sort things out? Well, I think the answer to that was it, it happened in, in increments over a period of time. So we've got the active 
futures months. So it did take a few months to unwind. It wasn't a few weeks. And at the end of it, when, when gold did start to flow into exchange, we actually saw very temporarily a discount to London. But that, that, that didn't last very long. So the, the answer to that is it, it did resolve itself as the four, four of the five main risks became manageable. Did the regulators get involved? Not really. Um, CME is a, is a self-regulatory organization, and they looked at creating another delivery point in London for 400-ounce bars. But that contract was a new contract, and it wasn't interdeliverable with the 100-ounce liquid futures contract. So it really didn't have too much of an effect. I think the traders and the risk managers together thought it was probably more prudent to keep some gold in New York from now on. I don't believe that they ever kept that much there, but certainly it's the case that some traders keep more gold in New York than they ever did before. Yeah, and how did this, um, like, did this leave a lasting impression on traders and risk managers' behavior? Um, you mentioned that some of these effects lingered. So, you know, maybe keeping a little bit more gold in New York, though you sound a little skeptical about that. But just, you know, once a spread that I think it's for a long time, people thought was, you know, a dollar, maybe $5 at the worst. And after you've seen it go to 60, it probably uh, changes the way you think about what's possible in the future. So has that changed some of those dynamics about, you know, how the gold traders in London hedge their risk and how they think about that? Now, I, th- I think risk managers have longer memories than traders do. So I think the traders are looking forward to getting back on the horse again and uh, and, and uh, business as usual where the risk manager is never going to let him forget it. So I suppose the answer is that, that there's a lot more prudence involved in managing those risks and positions, I would assume now. But I, I think at the time, a lot of people did question this whole structure of the market and, and how it came to be. And it, there was... Certainly, it did create an effect that led people to think about how to build a fungible global system of liquidity. So, you know, not just one in London, but multiple delivery points. But then as the market corrected itself and this unwound, a lot of people lost interest in trying to find a long-term resolution. It it was just too hard to do. So that idea got put on the back burner. Will it come back again? Maybe. And, you know, with the idea that these ideas might come back again or like, I'm curious, how vulnerable do you see the gold market being to this sort of thing happening again? It sounds like there may have been some lessons to be learned, but you know, it also sounds like we went back to business as usual fairly quickly. Yeah, we did. I think the the two things I've noticed aside from the reduction in limits was the, the greater use of forward London hedging. So we mentioned earlier that while some believe that the futures is a much more uh, efficient way of hedging because of its liquidity, its simplicity, and its lack of counterparty risk. The alternative was always there to go back to OTC forward hedging. And that's certainly what we've seen when we look at the trade data. So the, the 6 million ounce daily average of forwards and swaps on gold in London after this event became 10 million. And it remained 10 million, and I think it's still the same today. And it's had peaks into the sort of 15, 20 million ounce area. So I think what it tells you is that the system of using futures to hedge physical isn't as widely used as it was before the dislocation event. Hmm. And, and when you look at the gold market as someone who's been in it for a long time, you know, and was 
once chairman of the LBMA. What, when you look at it, what problems do you see remaining? You know that were, you know, we we discussed. I think maybe five problems or five issues in the market that you know created some of the vulnerability that we saw in March 2020. Which of those do you think remain, and which are the most important to be addressed? Well, I think it, it might serve a lot of a, a lot of needs if. I mean, we didn't mention the the, the London Metal Exchange, uh, although you know, most conversations in the commodity market do involve the LME at the moment for different reasons. But um, I mean, they had a contract that was loco London. But what's interesting about looking at their model for base metals is that it allows delivery into multiple locations. So you don't need to move metal around for the sake of moving metal because the terminal market only exists in one or two places. You know, it should be possible to, to use a multiple of locations in a, a more standardized contract. So does that mean building another futures contract that represents the 400-ounce bar? Maybe. It may be more relevant to look at one that, that uses the Keeler bar, which is the, the, the choice of the physical trader, and it's the choice of the physical market when it comes to end users. So I, I think that those, those subjects have, have remained at the forefront uh, of a lot of these conversations that we've had vis-a-vis the structure of the market going forward. And if, if you were to, when you look to the future, what do you see as a, a more robust way of building the gold market? I know it sounds like a lot of this is stuff that's kind of evolved over time, but is it you know more global, more standardized in terms of fungibility of the delivered product? What do you think you would change if you could? Well, I think it's not it's not for one person to say what they would change. It's for one person to listen to what everybody else would like to see. And I think people would like to see a bigger and more developed gold market. I think they'd like to see a lot of the local centers being more included rather than acting as outlying hubs. And so I, I think that the, you know, the, the synergy is a, is, a, is a global market rather than having outliers and you'll get more connectivity, you'll pull more liquidity. And that's what everybody wants at the end of the day. Nobody wants to deal in, in a pool of liquidity that, that evaporates as, as this differential did in 2020. So you know, the deepest pool of liquidity will always win. And I, and I think it's really up to the users of the market to, to come up and design their own future-proof system that allows everybody in, allows everybody to have access and to remove some of the barriers that we've seen in these examples that can be very disruptive to the market. Thanks again to David Gornell, former global head of precious metals trading at Natixis and a former chairman of the London Bullion Market Association. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Please join us next week as we continue When Markets Break on Smarter Markets. We hope you'll join us. This episode has been brought to you in part by Base Carbon. The trading of carbon credits can help companies and the world meet ambitious goals for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But how do we judge the quality of these projects? And how can we ensure that our investments are creating real value? At Base Carbon, we're focused on financing and facilitating the transition to net zero through trusted and transparent partners. It's time to focus on what's important. It's time to get serious on carbon. Learn more at basecarbon.com. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by Abax. 
For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees, and producer, Abax Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next week.